What is happening, you beautiful bastards? Welcome back to another week. This week, we talked with Jason Sheftel. Did I get it right, Jerry? You did. And I, <laughs> if you guys read the title, you can see his name looks pretty complicated. But I don't think people understand how much I struggle with the names week in, week out. <laughs> Just so you guys know, Grizz and I go over this for about 10 minutes before every episode yeah. so that I can help him say it. It, I mean, normal names fine, but the ones that are off, yeah, it's bad. But anyways. Yeah, so this is uh, Jason Sheftel. Yeah, and he has a very interesting take on China. He does. and It's, it's actually, not the norm. No. You know, we've talked about China multiple times here with multiple different people. And it's always uh, pretty similar. You know, China is coming up and they're direct competition to the U.S., which in a sense is true. But Jason's take on China and their future radically different from anybody we've spoken to so far polar polar options and it, he has a lot of information to back it up yeah it's very it's, interesting he makes a compelling argument and i actually i think to a certain extent his view on it is a very likely future for china i mean it's hard to tell but i mean from from all his information that he has it's yeah. hard not to see that that's what it's going to be you know yeah and time times now are crazy so anything could happen between now and 20 years from now but uh, i think you guys are going to uh find what he has to say pretty interesting because as i said is radically different what is happening you beautiful bastards Yeah, I've, I've been busy lately, so I haven't been up on the news like Grizz. I, my news is a lot of my news is just China and kind of how the world is going to go into pieces. So, so the actual individual it. fun events, I don't <laughs> like, oh, there was like a local, you know, shooting or like, so I don't know anything about any of that. Now, is, speaking of China, is it, is the, are things as bad as they feel right now from the American oh, yeah. point of view? Yeah. Much worse over there than even we're getting a sense of. <laughs> How did you get into China? Yeah, so the he story flew there, Andy. He flew. Oh my god! <laughs> well, yeah, right. I teleported. And actually, teleport it's routinely midway through this conversation. I'm going to Beijing. I'll be right back. Uh, no, so I've been into China forever, basically as long as I can remember. Had a guy, a Chinese guy, actually was kind of coming in and out of my parents' house when I was growing up. Loved it. Uh, I mean, love it. I was just kind of fascinated by it. That's mm. '90s, early 2000s. I got really struck by. I guess September 11th, suddenly we're, this country's at war. What's going on? Oh, God, we're smacking all these countries in the Middle East. And then in the background, I was thinking like, wow, there's China just getting real big, real strong, quite <laughs> worrisome. It does. And then, yeah, so then I got, you know, went, went to school, I mean, college. I got a scholarship actually to study in China. I lived there, studied there, I learned the language, et cetera. And then did, did a couple, many things after that. But a few years ago, I decided to put all the stuff I'd known, I know about China together, putting together a book. And it happens to time very well with the total collapse of the world that we know. So <laughs> that happens to be positive. But what I do right now, so the reason I don't know anything about the news is because I am, you know, face deep in trying to get this book done before the end of the year. So that's kind of the prime uh, thing I'm doing. It just means that, like, I can't stay on top of everything. I'm like, it's like, instead of, you, you have like two options. You either get to the bottom of things, or you can stay <laughs> on top of everything. And I cannot do both. So, uh, all the specific, like all sorts of little specific things, I don't know, but stuff about China and the deep causes, reasons, trajectories of things that I know quite a bit about. So does your, your, so you're writing a book 
guests. There's also a podcast. If people want uh, to kind of hear stuff that is yeah. obviously not in the whole book, there's a podcast called China Unraveled. goes through various things about the country, uh, mostly focusing on topical issues that kind of help explain parts of how, how did the country develop, what okay. happened during the pandemic, what was where the where the virus come from to the extent that we could know that, uh, you know, where how did China, right? Like, how did all this happen? What is the Communist Party like? Yeah. Where did it come from? All these questions, no one has any idea about any of it and nobody ever tells us. So it just helps to you know, break it down for people. I mean, there's a lot of great things to, it's funny in the world that we're moving into, there's gonna be so many chaotic, crazy things to freak out about mm-hmm. and you know, create, get into fun conspiracy theories about. They might as well clear away all the other stuff that's not even gonna be that cool pretty soon. So <laughs> the actual just true routine chaos of the future. So, get so you so you break it down like that in the podcast. Is it kind of the same thing in the book? Is it like a bird's eye view of everything going on there, where we where they've been, where they're going, that sort of thing? Hundred percent. Yeah. So the book is far more in depth and extensive. And the cool thing about that is it kind of uses China's case study to understand, give people who read it a perspective to understand a- a- any country really, like particularly right. the United States. Why is the United States the way it is? How does the United States compare to China? So the first chapter is like a huge comparison of the U.S. and China, kind of from the ground up. Mm-hmm. historically all this kind of stuff and it kind of just sets the stage for like all right now let's plow into chai sister explain yeah where it came from uh, how it came to be what it is how it specifically came to be exactly what we see today and then how it's doomed and what's going to happen uh in the near future and kind of where we'll go from there but it's it's cool it gives you know it's there's a lot of patterns of history that we were never really taught to um methods or processes or pattern or like anything to get a handle on it's sort of mm-hmm. just like oh endless facts and china is the best example of this there's like nine to 12 major dynasties states iterations of china you kind of have to know to get a handle on the, on the state on that country it's like who has time for that and right. like who who's even going to remember anything like if you read a book about china it's just literally here's some dynasty here's another dynasty then there's this next one and this one collapsed then another one came it's like it's a stupid it's a r- ridiculous <laughs> way to learn anything you're not gonna learn anything i've read dozens of books uh not specifically about china you don't won't remember any of it but what i do is i take it differently it's like let's look at this region of the earth how did people moved in here? When did they come? Where did they start out? Where did they consolidate? What were they? What were the problems? Who did they fight? Who did they take over? How do the different pieces of China actually connect? Because the single biggest misconception about China is that there's one China. There's not right. one China. It looks huge, massive, red, imposing, <laughs> tyrannical, but it is. It is many, many places. And once it you know, things go bad, you'll start to see it's going to fracture. In, uh, it's going to fracture and start to. Crack, crack apart basically along the same old fault lines that it's broken into for over 2000 years. So it's pretty so cool. Are you saying that it'll fracture because due to the people or just due to like the economy to the public? The yeah, China's deepest problems are all kind of internal to the country. So mm. it's, and that's kind of the same much, but it does have one point. I mean, the, the gist of it is basically last 500 years, China's become ex- extremely overpopulated relative mm. to its actual land capacity. Kind of like there's like a, a carry, they used to talk about in biology, like there's a carrying capacity. The number of wolves that this forest can sustain is only like above this level, you know, below this level. If you get above that, suddenly you just don't have the resources, right? The wolves don't have anything yeah. to eat. Well, China uh, is mass, like, just think about it. 1.2 billion people. Imagine if we had 1.2, which is really 1.2, one, between 1.2, 1.4 billion people Imagine if we had that many people in the United States. Uh, yeah, we, that's actually come up a couple of times on the mm. show here that we grew up in the 90s. So we kind of had a feel for what America was like. Like, or maybe the 90s is like the best time to be in America because we were ignorant to a lot of problems. 
but there was <laughs> yeah. way, way less people here. And you talk about where we're at now, you can, you know, if we go to a theme park, whatever, it's pretty evident there. We have 330-ish million people here, and it feels incredibly crowded compared to when I was a kid. Yeah. And, and that's not even anywhere near the over 1 billion people in China. Yeah, yeah so China forexed its population in the 20th century. We're about, you know, if we'd have to about the same, it's about four and a half times our population today. So if you want to be, imagine China right now, imagine the U.S. with four and a half times more people. It's crazy. That's, it's crazy. And here it gets, out, it gets even crazy. Don't so, they also have an issue with like, or you go on with your, sorry, I thought you were done with that. <laughs> no, we're, we're going to, you guys literally ask me any question, any kind of angle on it. And going to slowly, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you all these little pieces. It's going to be like a constellation. You're going to trust me a little bit early on. And the pieces will start to feel uh, fall together. Oh, I'm just going to There's that. so many little areas, but it'll be cool because it <laughs> should eventually come together. Field. <laughs> oh, okay, well, maybe that too. But <laughs> yeah, so the, the difference though is that the US and China are roughly the same size. Uh, okay, but basically, actually, if they took Taiwan, it would actually make them slightly bigger than the United States, which is kind of always kind of funny. But forget that. Uh, about the same size, but the United States has way better land that people can actually live on, right? So China is roughly speaking about uh, two thirds mountainous or hilly land, like stuff you can't, or, or deserts or really bad stuff. It's not a place you can live on, most of it. And so most of China, mostly the Chinese population, the population density is pulled into the Eastern part of the country, right? It's basically like that Eastern slope. There's just a small area where all the people are and the mass majority of it is just empty. The United States is totally different. So if you wanna, like, so we actually have an inverted ratio. So it's basically like one third of the country is really, crappy land think nevada basically one third of it is nevada and then or like you know parts of west virginia or whatever and then the rest the other two-thirds is good right china's flipped so what you have is basically imagine mm -hmm. if in if you want to imagine the u.s like the fully the full picture of the u.s and china like if we actually did this comparison uh you don't just have four and a half times more people you have four and a half times more people that are all stuffed in the east coast all near you guys new england like big you know Boston, Washington, New York quarter. Imagine mm. four and a half times, almost over like 90% of the population is just stuffed there. That'd be terrible. Okay? And yeah. it gets worse. So not only in China do you have all those people, which is that big, stuffed in that, that much land, but they have their, basically their equivalent of the Midwest where they do all their farming. Like right, that is right, is, there you go, perfect. Midwest is here and they have their big metropolis stacked on top. So you have all your farmland is underneath the massive place where you have all your people, right? How does that, so how does that work out for them? It, it means that they've been steadily paving over the best farmland and they're struggling to feed their own people. They basically do it entirely through massive, massive use of industrial fertilizers, which if you guys are following some of the news with Russia, Ukraine, all that kind of stuff, we're in a massive uh, fertilizer, not just a food shortage, but more importantly, a fertilizer, yeah, fertilizer shortage. shortage. Fertilizer, industrial fertilizers are what allow the, the enormous yields that uh, make the modern population, uh, modern populations in Africa, Southeast Asia, the Middle East, China, everywhere. all of it possible, <laughs> everywhere possible. And China in particular, the growth in Chinese, the Chinese, Chinese population is 4X, like I said, the entire growth of the Chinese population, basically from 1978 on, is entirely, the, the only reason they've been able to feed that many people is because of the fertilizer. It's like a direct growth. Like it's like the growth in fertilizer and the growth in yields, that's the only reason why you take that away, you know, 500 million people uh, die within a, within a year or two. I just, wonder, it's like, don't, isn't it somewhat correlated with the fact that their workforce has aged and now they have no one that's in prime working age? 
Yeah. So uh, the a big reason we had such a great time in the 90s, 2000s, till the middle of the 2010s was because the, the whole world had this amazing demographic moment where, we, in you know, one part of this is always demography, right? You guys have heard everywhere. It's not just China that's aging. Everyone's aging. Everyone's turning into Japan. And so the one piece that's often missed, if you're kind of watching news stories about this, reading them, is they won't tell you like the basic, the way this kind of plays out generally. So roughly speaking, there's four types of workers, right? People in this economy. You have children, roughly zero to 18. You have young workers, roughly 18 to 45. And then you have mature workers, 45 to 65. And then you have retirees, everybody over 65, right? So the children, uh, they just, they're just a money sink, right? You have to pay for them endlessly. They cry, they bitch, they moan. They need healthcare. They need education. They need everything. They need diapers. They need, it's just toys. It's just a fat cost for everything, but they are the future. So eventually they will contribute to society, produce things. They'll be the future growth and demand for the, the economy and the, and the whole system. And then you have the young workers who are just, you know, people who are basically, they're getting loans. They have to, they're starting families. They're buying all this stuff. They're, they have relatively really high expenses all the time and they're taking a lot of loans so they're actually a lot of the demand for the entire system right they're paying for often a lot of the stuff for those children and then you get to your mature workers it's about 45 to 65 these are the high earners right they don't they've paid off their cars they've paid off their homes they've paid they've you know they paid off everything their children are gone and now they're at the peak of their earning power and they're raking it in and the government is feasting off of them and taking a lot of income in and they're actually helping to support the system and then finally you have retirees who pay nothing Right, they get pensions. They they're done. They and then back they to be in a money sink. They get back to be a money sink, right? So that, that's the way it goes. And so the way it used to work is you used to have a lot of children, and then you had less young workers. Then you had less mature workers, and you had like very few retirees because everybody was dying, right? Like so, <laughs> you don't make it up there. Nobody saves you. There's no there's none of this stuff. So that that's done. Now you get industrialization, and this all changes. So we basically have less and less children. Because children are no longer just free labor on the farm as they were in China. It's like literally, all right, well, let's do this. Just get, get a couple more kids and we'll, exactly. So they don't do that. And now that you get, uh, right. So you go through this thing and you basically have the population pyramid, which used to be like, well, an actual pyramid, right? Uh, you used to have less workers at the bottom, you know, children <laughs> no, at the bottom, less, 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 less. So it looks like a pyramid. It starts to invert. So you have to get, first you get a bulge. As the industrialization hits, you start having less kids. You first have a lot of kids and then you have a lot of uh, young workers and then you have a lot of mature workers. And then you finally end up like Japan. You have just a lot of retirees and you're screwed, right? You can't even reproduce yourself. Once women hit menopause, roughly, you know, 50, and really, really you're pushing it by 50 is the absolute cutoff. You can't even reproduce your, your population anymore, yeah. right? That is where most of the world is heading. And in China, it's pretty horrific. Uh, but that, that that's kind of a, a general process. China really messed it up because like I said, they had this massive explosion in their population and they were, you know, they had the fertilizer, they had all this stuff, but they were terrified that they, if they, you know, they had so many children, they wouldn't be able to support things, right? This is actually like that pyramid is what Mao looked at and was like, and Deng Xiaoping, they're like, uh, how are we supposed to develop? If we just keep having endless children, right? If we have suddenly more food, the historic thing in China is if you have more food, you just have more kids. There's no contraception. There's none of this. Anyway, they did the one child policy and that was, Heinous and horrific. I mean, if you guys don't really know, I mean, this is what the one child policy was in practice was the, you know, basically <laughs> wide scale, <sighs> I mean, wide scale population control on a, on a, a largely rural population that didn't have contraceptions, where you're basically doing mandatory abor abortions, uh, all sorts of menstrual monitoring. You're, it was just, it was just absolutely heinous, you guys. I mean, just imagine like people, women stra strapped to like bamboo. <laughs> 
uh, like, you know, poles screaming, pregnant, being brought into facilities where they got forced abortion, stuff like that. That was, there are, there are like family planning clinics in China and there's nurses there and they, their whole career was basically to abort something between 40 and 50,000 people, uh, children or okay. babies or fetuses, whatever you want to call it. And that's now ironically and horrifically changing because they now know, oh God, we did this one child policy and that helped us perhaps back then. But now we have no children. We have but zero yeah. children. You, we are the fastest aging. Fastest. Didn't they like, also go for only males? That is a yeah, a, a long historic preference in China. They always go for the families go for sons rather than uh, daughters. That's actually a kind of a common at agrarian society type thing, common in India and stuff like that too. But it's really bad in China, and yeah, it's led to a massive, massive oversupply of. Yeah, you know, this is kind of the language you got to use oversupply of of men. Uh, there's yeah. they can't find spouses. They can't, um, and it's probably over undercounted too. The, the parties lie. I mean, they say it's about forty million. It could easily be as high as hundred million men who there, there's no right. There's no women for right. There's a, this deficit of that many women. And uh, on right. top of that, you probably have all the women who have this taboo idea of about having more than one one child, anyways. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, you know because they've grown up with it. Even if the, even though they the the, the parties change their plans. Yeah, think about the psychological shock. You're like, all right, exactly. I grew up every day, like told never I watched have a kid. We all just these need one. Women. And now it's like, now you need three. Three. Yeah, exactly. You like never first forever was one, if any. And now it's like three, or we all we all die. Uh yeah, I mean, that's the way things are going. And it's really bad. And what you were mentioning was the uh labor inflation. So what, what happens is like the, one of the key causes of inflation is just straight up how many people do you have? Right. Like, and in China, they have they've been actually because they have the one child policy. They've seen insane labor inflation, something like, I don't know, three or four, you know, three or four hundred percent um, growth in labor productivity, which is like the efficiency of every word, the output per worker or whatever, but like 15x growth in, in the cost of labor. I mean, it's, they, because it's going up so much because the actual number of people is shrinking. So yeah. typically, if you have a lot of people, the you need each worker to become more effective. I mean, if you, if you have less, less people, you need each one to be more efficient, more productive, et cetera. But they don't have, they have, it's, it's not even close. Like, right, they have like five times worse inflation. It's really bad. <laughs> it's just really bad, basically. Uh, and there's so many problems. Like, we get into the whole Chinese um, labor market, all of its flaws, problems, and stuff. But the gist of it is that they're, the, the way that China really gained a lot of the global manufacturing that it did to become the factory of the world and producing a third of all global manufactured goods is because it was the cheap place to do it. It mm -hmm. made itself the place with the cheapest labor, the worst environmental laws, the worst or you know, the best, however you want to think about it, right? You know, the best, best place to do anything you wanted, right? For the cheapest price, basically it was like, we have slave, you know, basically we have slave labor and you, if you're a foreign business, you can take advantage of it. And you get tax benefits in all these different ways. If you do like a little piece in the Philippines, a little piece here, a little piece there. It was a global labor and tax arbitrage during heyday of globalization. And allowed China to get all this stuff together. Now, as this has been un unraveling for the last kind of 15 years, you, there's, the advantage isn't there, right? You are no longer the place where you have the cheap labor and you're not really efficient. You're not really productive in the same way. And all like China's industrial plant, right? So we always talk about the US being like rusted out and the Rust Belt and all that kind of stuff. That's all true to, to, to an extent. But China, you got everyone's like, oh, China's got all this new brand new stuff. China's factories are way more outdated, way older way less efficient than anybody realizes, right? For, I mean, the heyday of Chinese industrialization was really between like 1985 and 2005. And they weren't there to do build high-tech advanced factories. They were there to take advantage of really cheap labor, 
really lax environmental laws and to pump out as much product as yeah. possible. Throw so as many people as possible at the problem. Yeah, so, right? so they could afford all the inefficiencies of not updating any yeah. facilities because yeah. you know, people were expendable. And people were, I, you know, I've talked to multiple businessmen, they, both both newer and older. And you, I've heard, you, the, the number of hurry stories I've heard where they're just like, uh, oh, I was building this thing and this guy like fell off a ladder or something. This guy like got his arms, you know, just jammed into a into a machine whatever screaming 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 he asked what's wrong and some manager just says oh no 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 don't worry like the guy is being taken away on on a stretcher or something <laughs> we have more people don't worry so, yeah, exactly. no, oh no 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 i, I want to know what, what, what is the guy with the guy what happened to the guy is he okay it's like no 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 don't worry we have more people one um, of my favorite stories about uh business operations with china is i have a buddy and i'm not, I'm not going to put any names out there he worked on the upholstery for vehicles right and they had all this upholstery made for vehicles and they found like within a short period of time the upholstery was cracking right so the mixture for this was bad and so he sends you know an email over to his factory in china and says hey uh that whole batch is all bad like we have to redo it we have to do all this stuff and without saying what they needed to do the next email back was them standing on the side of the road with this roll of of material on fire <laughs> and he's like whoa that is not what the fuck i wanted at all like i did not say to do that but they're like it's taken care of don't worry we'll move on <laughs> jesus yeah <laughs> problem, problem solved we burned it <laughs> yeah it's all good yeah the, the thing with china now though is that we're we've rapidly we've already hit the point where all these little facts about how it happened and what's going on, like we're we're hitting we're careening towards like the actual impending collapse of all these things now like in the last couple of years i've been doing all this stuff I've been more circumspect. I've been like, yeah, you know, it's, it's coming, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to like give all these details, but like things are really bad there with the way COVID, I mean, you got, you were uh, mentioning at the beginning. It's <sighs> yeah. What was it? Uh, is it Grizz? Was it Shanghai or whatever it was that they completely locked everything down? Yeah. I mean, it's several different areas to my understanding, but like they're just, they're, they have this zero COVID cases policy going on and it's not working very well. And I don't know how it's still spreading. Because I, I haven't read into it that much, but they're just locking down entire areas, like yeah, entire... to the point of starvation and death and all that. Yeah, That's people right. just like losing their shit, and like, you can't blame them. Well, yeah. China's got the power to do that over their people. I they they I don't think that America get away with that without literally putting the military on the street, but. Uh, they did historically <laughs> yeah i know but uh, like america we that's probably yeah, yeah. not going to happen here but historically like the last couple of years everyone's been talking about how china is a huge economic threat and clearly that was their goal as economic power but based on what you're talking about here it seems pretty unlikely to pan out for them yeah their goal like any other country is if they could swing it uh they'd want to be top dog absolutely i don't blame them who wouldn't want to be? And like the second you're really coming up, that's the first thing you you think. Oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna take over the world. I mean, this is it's not a new story. Uh, it's not a new story. And China is a very old, proud uh, country with a lot of historic accomplishments and you know good 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 moments in its past. But the uh, the big problem for it, the, you know, the, the great the great problem. It's amazing because the United States is both the reason modern China was able to come together and achieve everything it did. And it's also the reason why I could never be the top dog, period, you know, forever. Like, it's just not in the same weight class. Uh, and it's also, we, we go into a lot of reasons why. Obviously, if you're watching kind of the news and stuff, it definitely, everyone for the last 10 years would really make you think otherwise. And I want to be clear, 
I, you know, like I said, I've been into this for a very long time and I've gone through all the stages of like, um, perceptions and feelings about China, like, oh God, they're going to totally defeat us. And oh my God, are they, what's going to happen? And like, da, da, da. So, you know, finally that you end up there, you're like, okay, this place is basically doomed. And you just try to get people to understand why, but yeah, I mean, right now, just to tie back to the COVID lockdowns, right? So the, the reason these are happening is because the Chinese vaccine uh, doesn't work, right? It wasn't really great for the first version of COVID. Now we're like three or four down and it's basically useless. <laughs> I don't even know anymore. <laughs> yeah, and it's basically useless. And so the again, they were they were trying to act like they were the basically the the arsenal of medicine that they were saving, the, even though the COVID came from China. They were trying to say, oh, we're going to have the best vaccines and we'll give people PPE and masks, and all the stuff we're going to save the world. Didn't really work out that way. The, the good vaccines came from the West. China, though, is a bit too invested in its own image of itself to actually buy a couple trillion dollars worth of vaccine. So it's actually sticking to its vaccines and they don't work. And so its only option, really, if it wants to have zero COVID, and the, the reason it wants zero COVID is because it's staked its legitimacy on public health, right? The economics are, are, are I've been declining in China for a very long time. They've been propped up and massaged all the numbers for a very long time. But everybody knows that this, this story was coming to an end. It, it would have had to move to a different phase. China's invested more in infrastructure and, in, and fixed assets, all the kind of big, hard, heavy industries and uh, facilities that any country ever by far. So it needed to, you know, you've done it. You have the bridges you need, China. You have the roads. Like it, what more of this wasn't going to move the needle. They needed to become basically a consumption economy like the United States. But for a lot of reasons, including the demographics we've talked about, that was never really going to happen. Uh, so they've basically, basically just been kicking the can down the road, kind of continuing to juice the property sector and exports, all this kind of stuff. This stuff they've been doing for a long time. Very reminiscent of like the USSR before it fell. Like just it, it's not working. They're trying to make it work. They're trying to bullshit their way out of it. But, you know, it all comes out in the end. Yeah, no, the, the USSR is a good it's a good example. Uh, I have a podcast series called uh, Tales of the Communist Empire. It tries to explain what what the ideology of china is like how do you have a communist country with like billionaires everywhere and in the <laughs> government and all this and you know i called i say communist empire because that's the gist of it china is basically a modern day version of just an old chinese empire with like a, a red veneer on it but it functions disturbingly similar and the the modern model it uses is just the soviet union right so that was the other one and functionally the soviet union was very similar to just a you know you know communist version of a russian imperial state Right. You look at the current Russia, you're like, well, you're kind of also acting like a classic Russian imperial state that Catherine yeah. the Great would know. We you know, in Bismarck. <laughs> yeah, you're just changing the name. So these countries don't really change all that much. There's, there's structural limits on that kind of thing. And it's yeah. And so the Soviet Union, it's really true. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's very true. People right now are trying to learn Chinese uh, while very cool language and fun. And I, I definitely enjoyed it. Uh, you're not going to be using it all that much. Uh, it's like the people who are, and also another important thing is so many people were lost and confused when the Soviet Union fell, right? Nobody predicted it. Oh my God, it's a great war. Reagan was pumping up the, the military to, you know, do all sorts of crazy things because he thought the war was still on. And we're going to see basically the same thing here. Yeah. Uh, well, and we're you not know, seeing all the lies and bullshit that's happening behind. Yeah, but also the United States kind of needs a, an opponent. Right now, the, the country is extremely divided. Uh, the, the parties are reorganizing themselves in a very chaotic process. Most people feel disenfranchised from wherever, from where they were, from where they want to be, from where this, you know, politically. So it's going to take a while to, to settle all that. And 
you know, it's much easier to point your finger at another, another country and just say, oh, we need to beat them rather than say, hey, well, what do we want to be? And kind of we need to try and figure that out. Yeah. Or, or, or a, an opponent, right? Like we, it's not, it's not unreasonable to say the United States got a lot more shit done when it had the Soviet Union to kind of really stiffen up its spine and kind of focus it, right? There's probably a lot less TikTok and crypto at the very end of, uh, you know, at that kind of thing. Well, so if you don't have someone else to, to focus your, your human bullshit on, you focus it inward, right? And that's what we're doing right now. We're tearing ourselves off, apart from the inside because we're looking at ourselves and not at anyone else. Yeah, and I'll say that one thing, I don't focus too much on American politics in part because I think it's been stuck in a bizarre holding pattern. These cultural wars aren't, haven't been moving very much. But the, the big reason why you, know, you can avoid it for a bit is change is finally coming, right? History has, has returned and soon like very heavy material challenges, deprivations, shortages, and real problems are gonna be back all around the world. Uh, including in, to, to some degree in the United States. And so uh, that's going to move the needle in, in the way that nothing else has. So you just look at Germany, for example. Germany's been kicking the can down the road on Russia and security and energy for 30 years. And then within a couple months, we've, saw, we've seen more motion. In three months, we've seen more motion than in 30 years. So that's, uh, you know, that's kind of the way things are going to happen. We've known for years that the U.S. government only governs through crisis, right? So here's another crisis. <laughs> That's the way it'll probably happen. So I guess kind of on that note, it's, you know, it, it's been in the news lately that between China and Taiwan and China's watching the way the world is dealing with the whole Russia-Ukrainian war thing and seeing how they're going to work with Taiwan. Why the hell, it, why is this such a big thing for them? Hmm. That's a great question. Yeah. So Taiwan, man. Taiwan is, so so first of all, why doesn't China have Taiwan? That's another question, right? So Mao took over, so there's the Chinese Civil War, 1940s, uh, and you know, Mao took over the country. Mao won, got the support of the Soviet Union, took over everything, but they didn't manage to conquer Taiwan, and the nationalists fled uh, when they lost on the mainland to Taiwan. Well, why didn't Mao make it over to Taiwan? Because the U.S. Navy stood in his way. Uh, he, there was zero chance, and there's never been zero. There's been, throughout the 20th century, there's zero chance China could ever get past a U.S. Navy that had said, no, you can't go. Uh, <laughs> so that's the reason that Taiwan exists, right? I'm not going to mince any words here. And the United States probably really enjoyed the fact that that kept China permanently uh, broken in pieces. It's a classic kind of America's strategy here. But the the broader thing with China, the Taiwan and Chinese history is that you, you talk to China now and it says, oh, my God, Taiwan's been a part of China for 3,000 years. Da, da, da. No. No, no, no. China only, I mean, Taiwan only ever became part of China in the very last Chinese dynasty, the Qing dynasty. And actually, the, the, the really interesting, ironic, and kind of beautiful thing about this is that this is, the, this is actually the second time that a defeated Chinese state has fled the mainland and, you know, took up, taken up shop in Taiwan. This is exactly what happened. Basically, there's a big war between the Qing and the Ming dynasty, and they did the exact same thing. Sorry, but yeah, between the Qing and the Ming dynasty, when the Ming was collapsing, and the old Ming loyalists basically just fled to Taiwan. And in that time, you know, they took a couple decades, but they managed to build up some ships and they just conquered it themselves. This time though, the US Navy owned the entire seas of the entire world. So that was not possible. Um, and that's, that's kind of the broader context. And for China, within China, it is seen as a, a key piece of uh, national consolidation and integration. Uh, the, the, the great theme of Chinese history is basically uh, 
you know, the, the, the rise of a, the rise of a state and its demise. It's sort of the, the chaos after the demise of a, of a Chinese state and the attempt to put it back together. And the, they're always trying to, you know, bring the whole thing together. And this helps maintain its territorial integrity and sort of this sense of national unity. Because like I said, there's many different Chinas already within China. And the fact that you have a little piece of China that isn't part of the rest of China kind of suggests to the rest of China that maybe there's a chance that we could do the same, right? This is the reason that Hong Kong is a problem. This is the reason that uh, Taiwan is a problem. All these things, they, they limit the authority of the northern, the central government was originally a northern government against rough, all the South, roughly speaking. And that is uh, extremely dangerous to the integrity of China, right? So I'm not going to give, I'm not, gonna, I'm not trying to justify anything, but just trying to give guys context on things, uh, right? So the before the 20th century, in that war I just mentioned, the Ming versus the Qing, uh, the two deadliest wars in human history were both Chinese civil wars, that war and another civil war uh, after that. Uh, those are the deadliest wars in human history. And, you know, you take out some of the world wars. But now, you know, you look at a real case of actual like state breakdown in China, that by itself would be worse than all of World War II, the number of people that would die, almost certainly. So this is always the, the moral question when you think about China. Yeah, you want to defeat them, crush them, be better than them. That's fine. But once you realize, huh, that country's a lot more weaker than I thought, kind of like Russia, we're like, oh, we got to get ready for a war with Russia. It's like, why? We would crush them in a day. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> we learned that a, a little while ago. So it's a similar thing with China. You you got to be wary what you wish for because it's, you know, it's a terrible, a very t- tyrannical dictatorial uh, country. And it does that because it has extreme internal problems. So it's trying to always massage and keep together and basically prevent from spiraling out of control and leading to a, a massive apocalyptic ca- cascade of like famine, civil war, migrations, diseases, just everything. That's actually how most Chinese states ended. It would just be like the absolute horsemen of the apocalypse riding through along with the Huns and the Mongols. Like <laughs> they would all just ride through China. Uh, it was pretty horrific. And so that's uh, the, real, the real challenge. And so they see Taiwan as sort of this, I mean, it's just another thing like COVID. They, they always... They're staking everything on Taiwan. And it's like, to them, it's like, well, if we can't get Taiwan, we can't do anything, right? You're, you're never going to be one of the big boys if you can't even unite your own country. If the U.S. is just like, no, nah, no. Like at some point, you're, you, you feel like you have to take a stand. They've been waiting and waiting and they want to do it by 2035 and da, da, da. They have all this stuff. They don't have really have the time and they don't currently have the military to do it, right? Many estimates have already said before uh, the Ukraine war, you know, they could lose up to a third of their military just trying to take Taiwan. And that could easily be a... It seems like such a crazy number for such a small place, too. But look at Ukraine, man. Like, it's, it's so hard. Think about, like, we, everyone always just thought, like, the way China wanted it to work is it wanted it to be, like, a fait accompli. They wanted it to just basically say, they wanted to just move in, right? Move in before the U.S. could come in. Move in before anyone could do anything. Close them off and just take it over and then kind of just say, hey, you know, we did it. What are you going to do, right? You're going to come and just reclaim it. That's a little intense, right? But now they know this isn't going to be a quick operation. And just to be clear, like amphibious operations are, especially this kind of thing, like Russia's having a problem crossing bridges, okay, in eastern yeah. Ukraine, right? <laughs> Let alone Trying to seems. cross the, the Taiwan Strait and do that continuously and put enough helicopters and fuel and tanks and all that consistently to c- keep building up your beachhead, it is one, it is an, basically amphibious operations are the most complex military operations you can do. And China hasn't done one ever and has no hit, no real naval tradition. That's another thing. 
And also, China hasn't really fought a war with modern technology. The last time it fought a war was in 1979 against Vietnam. And it's just, it's all different. And, you know, kind of like Russia, the Chinese military is a, it's, it's very, I'm not trying to discount a lot of it, but it is not quite like the U.S. military. It's part of the, the PLA. It's very political. It's, it's very corrupt. It has many challenges uh, that, are, that are very different from the way we think of, of the military. It's not, it's not quite the same beast. And it is, though, designed almost entirely to take Taiwan. But it's just the geography is horrific, right? Like you, Taiwan is a, a you know, good-sized island, and it has a massive mountainous spine along the, the center of it and along the east coast. And it has mudflats all along the west coast of it, uh, most of it. So there's very few landing zones, right? And so that means you have to you have to put all your guys like in this one place, and you have to consistently fuel them and resupply them. And all Taiwan really needs to do, if they have enough drones and mines and missiles, they could make it impossible. Like yeah, it's because just, they, it, they they can't they, they're all basically being funneled into a, an alleyway, right? So yeah, you just point your gun. That's I pretty much what they're going to be walking into. I would yeah. be curious though if Taiwan got the funding and the backing that Ukraine is getting currently. You know what I mean? I, I know I, that I bet they would. You they would. Yes, I know they'd get some, but it's a little bit different when the battle's happening in your back door. You know, where Taiwan, that's more Japan, yeah, kind of thing. Well, you so nailed J- it. Japan's going to back that one. So that's the big, the big change in the last, really, in the last couple of years. It's become Japan's made it more and more clear that. You know, they'll get involved with anything with Taiwan. And we've kind of known all this. We've known the U.S. would get involved. We've known that Japan would get involved. Again, geography is kind of the key here. Uh, the Japan's big archipelago, and it leads down to the Ryukyu Islands where Okinawa was and all that. And then at the very bottom of it is Taiwan. You can see Taiwan on a good day from the southernmost Japanese island. So any attempt to secure Taiwan by China requires them to take some of these Japanese islands. It puts them right into a conflict with China. And the Ryukyu Islands are uh, you know, right above... Uh, Taiwan, they're actually claimed by China, right? Th- that's the reason you have all these issues, right? They're all they're all together, so th- that's pretty well known. And yeah, I mean that's the difference. though. you're right. Like in the, for Western Europe, uh, Western Europe's pretty useless in any war against China. We've known that for a long time. Like France isn't too useful. That's part of the reason Australia just ditched French uh, subs. It's like, well, you're pretty far away. I don't think you'd be pretty useful whenever the shit hit the fan. I don't want to try to get some shit from the French on the other side of the world when you're dealing with your own problems. Uh, that's, you know, that's part of it. And it, it's a different thing. But I think that the changes we've seen in the world because of Ukraine have been pretty extensive, right? So we've seen all of Europe gain a spine. We've seen corporate boycotts. We've seen massive retaliatory financial war. Uh, we've seen the development of a the largest and most <laughs> insanely funded and well-intelligenced and supplied a proxy war in human history, probably. Uh, so it's, it's it's a massive change, and it's also stiff in the spine uh, of the Taiwanese, who, you know, they're seeing where where things are going, and they've also seen what uh, China did to Hong Kong, where Hong Kong in the 1997 it was brought in part of the Chinese brought into the Chinese fold, etc. Uh, and it was like, oh, we'll have two part, uh, what was it, two 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 China, two countries, one system, whatever it was. Uh, I can, I'm actually forgetting their phrase, but yeah, there's supposed to be two systems there, right? You have the old kind of Hong Kong thing, you have the Chinese thing. And then, uh, no, you know, starting the last <laughs> couple of years, they started to just flatten it. And I have a good series on this. You guys should check it out. It's called A Battlefield Hong Kong. It explains, it's a good way. If you guys want to kind of how I look at things, what kind of like the book might be like, it gives you this like, well, where did Hong Kong come from? Why did it never, why was it never a part of Chinese history? It's like, well, the British took it for a very specific so reason. The British. And then they used it for a very specific reason. And then it got morphed into something very specific once the, the US 19, post-1945 world order kind of came into, came into being. 
And then now we're in this world where Chinese, the Chinese economic model has changed so much that Hong Kong doesn't really have quite the same benefit anymore. And it's actually just another thing like Taiwan, where uh, why we don't want to encourage all the other potential city states on the Chinese southern coast to look at you know, Hong Kong and think, well, why are they special? Why are they different? Why are they wealthier? All this kind of stuff just creates more of these internal divisions, tensions, stuff like that. So China's goal is basically to flatten uh, Hong Kong and make it indistinguishable from any other Chinese city, which is harebrained and stupid because obviously it isn't. But that is kind of irrelevant. That's the way they have to look at things to try and make sure the center holds. We kind of had a conspiracy theory on that. And I think other people have that. Oh, tell me. You had all the. Every one of my friends, by the way, you can feel free to say any, because I don't want to cut you off. All these, like, most of my friends are conspiracy theorists. So I'm always disappointing them that I don't, <laughs> that I don't share. We don't really, we don't believe in any of ours. We just entertain them for uh, you know, okay. podcast reasons. But, mm. uh, you know, it's just it's fun to think that there's some evil genius trying to do some crazy shit. Uh, so anyways, Hong Kong had all those crazy riots going on. And next yeah. thing you know, COVID's popping up in China. And the riot, all the riots have quieted up because there's a deadly virus. Oh, no. yeah. I forgot about that one. Yeah. 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 It's actually been hitting the virus has kind of been hitting Hong Kong hard. Like like the rest of Thai, of China, they just they didn't vaccinate their elderly population. So they're they're all in, in trouble. Uh, they were trying to get yeah. rid of those fucking the, the money sinks. Yeah, that, that's a silver lining there. You know, COVID, because they're not taking the really good working vaccines, the people that are at the top of this upside down pyramid, uh, you know, it's going to be trimming down <laughs> I, a little bit. I heard someone call COVID the boomer remover. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems to have been that way. I mean, across the globe, too. Uh, you know, it's a little, maybe it's a little too dark, but it's what's happening. Yeah, I mean, the real problem with that, though, is that we need you need more uh, children, right? I mean, because it's like that's just that, that's kind of the fundamental thing. And, you know, everybody, everybody's so intense. They're always thinking like, well, it's, it's a feminism. It's this. It's it's that. It's this. It's, I mean, the, the real root cause that we could see is fundamentally industrialization is the reason why we've had these changes in birth rates. It's actually a crazy thing. Um, you know, hunter-gatherers, uh, there was a different spacing thing where hunter-gatherers used to have a, a child every four years because basically you need the kid to be able to walk next to the mother. She couldn't like carry two children while they're hunting. Again. It was just wasn't possible. So you had all these uh, biological changes and social changes and stuff where it would take about four years. And then when you had sedentary agriculture, you got like a, a child every two years. So I mean, you, you could see there were women who had you know, eight, 10, 12, you know, children, regardless, not necessarily that all of them survived over the, over time, but then you get industrialization and you know, people leave the fields and they go into you know urban areas and all this kind of stuff. Well, cities basically form, you have urbanization and it it just changes all the dynamics, right? It changes the relationships between men and women, between uh, men in the workforce, uh, women and, 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 and the labor system, uh, people in their governments, politics, it's changed, it literally changes everything. It's a very traumatic experience for every single country, industrialization, how it happens. China in particular is like horrifically um, as we could see, all the, all the stuff it had to do, right? The one-child policy. But yeah, and the the only way we really know to try and improve uh, birth rates at all is basically need a, you need space. You need to make it and you need to make it easy to have a family. So like both the left and the right in the United States are like poking at part of the thing. They're like, the left will be like, oh, uh, let's have more uh, maternity leave and parental leave, all this kind of stuff for when you first have kids. It's like, fair enough. And the right will be like, well, let's do all these things that our family... You know, they'll just say the word family a lot, like a family, family, uh, family policy, <laughs> family planning, family, family, whatever. They're really into like family, family values, all that kind of stuff. But the, the key thing is you basically need to, or, and they're also into trying to make the cost of living much lower. So cheaper, this cheaper, that. Yeah. They're the failing right. at that one. 
Yeah. And so the, the real problem is that you, you need to do it across the board. So you need the, to lower the cost of, of having a family. And we unfortunately are seeing massive inflation and it's just, it, it really just cuts it in the other direction, right? Like you need cheaper energy, cheaper food, cheaper uh, health, uh, healthcare, cheaper childcare, cheaper homes, cheaper. Like that's, that's the thing that lets people say, Oh, like I can have a kid versus like, uh, I cannot afford a child. You know what I mean? Like, I'm paying, I'm paying uh, 2,500 for this apartment in LA or 4,000. Like, how am I supposed to do this for uh, some, you know, little monstrous version of me? Another one. I, I saw today that the US hit positive 1% on the birth rates this for the first time, like in God knows how many years. So I'm curious yeah. of what China is right now too. China's, they, all their statistics are, are, are fake at this point. Like Russia, that's they, true. they've been lying. I'm, I'm curious what the real numbers are. Not pretty bad out but i'm curious i mean it's like it's hilarious when you actually think about the basic math of, of what uh the uh what it might look like so you've made china you've mandated everybody only have one child okay and the way you the, the you know the classic number the you know, statistics people look at is the total fertility rate it's basically like how many children per woman over a lifetime right it's you know, that's what they look at and you typically want 2.1 children per woman because you know some don't make it all the way to you know adulthood and all that so yeah, you want two point one. So, uh, which is always always hilarious. Like, the the great way I always think about it is like, well, how many people do you know are having three or more kids? And that's kind of like the real human question here. For like, are you growing your population? Well, in China, you've only been allowed to have one for forty years. So the total fertility rate can't be much higher than one. <laughs> like you've literally taken it, two people and made one. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's just anyone who tries to pretend like the math, it, it's just, it's a, I, so give you, give you guys a story. When I was in Beijing, I was actually getting a lecture in, in the department of demography in Beijing university. This is actually the department in the university that implemented the one child policy. And it was, I just distinctly remember it being really uh, super, there's a word in Chinese I'm forgetting now, but guys are on, on the internet, they call people like oily man. There's a, it's like a, you know, kind of like a version of like creepy. We have all these weird, they have one called this oily guy. This guy was like an oily dude. Like he had like weird white hair, like this thin, <laughs> thinning hair is all greasy. Anyway, he goes into this very creepy speech about how we will know exactly how, how many people we will be having and what our urbanization rate will be at every year for the next like 20 years. It's like, what are you, like, what are you talking about? Dude? Like, it's like, none of this, none of this was, it was just so creepy, so weird. And so like, you know, when like sometimes you get like a, a narrative that's being pushed by the media, but you know, behind the scenes, it could be an intelligence uh, organization, it could be a corporate interest, it could be whatever. But everyone's just using these flows of information to, to push their interest in all these various ways. It's like the modern information uh, diet environment we have. It's like the same thing in China, where it's like this weird model. But in China, it's always like this monolithic <laughs> communist entity is like pushing its it, deadly failed narrative like relentlessly, <laughs> and you're just like you could feel it. You're just like, oh my god, like <laughs> you <laughs> please stop. Now, um, with, yes. with so with that information, you know, that, that kind of that view on what their birth rates look like and the trouble they're in, let's fast forward a little bit to, well, maybe a lot of bit to China's future. And, you know, you're talking about everything fracturing there. What does a collapsing China look like for one, for China, but also for the global economy and the United States combined? And what, what's that going to, what's going to happen to everybody? Yeah. So let's start with China. Uh, within China, it's a very macabre situation, right? I mean, this is the uh, the thing that China, the reason the Chinese people put up with these horrifically tyrannical states is because the thing they fear most is chaos, right? That's actually the thing they fear most, order and chaos. That's the, the story in Chinese history. And 
well, and like I said, I mean, the big wars, you know, they've had when, when chaos really hits China, it's far worse than anywhere else on the planet. Like there's more, north, there's a region in northern China called the North China Plain. Mm-hmm. It's the site of ancient Chinese politics. That's probably the bloodiest place on this planet. Just to give you guys context, right? You've had a large population in China for over 3,500 years, and that place has been a battleground for just as long. And it's just been in a lot of ways when there is, even when there is a Chinese state, whenever there isn't, it's just relentless, bloody military conflict endlessly, right? So before China became a single country, it experienced like five, over 500 years of continuous warfare, right? Uh, just to give us context, like that is, that is, like if, if you take, like if we go back 500 years from today, like that goes, but before the formation of the United States, like before Shakespeare, before, you know, like before like the scientific revolution, industrial, like you have to go way back, right? And they experienced that uh, relentlessly for that long. So, it's so, like, so that's China's default when they, t- when they start to collapse. Yeah, and that's also what they fear. So that's why they put up with these crazy states. These, these, these empires, all these dynasties, all of them, they were what held the line against that. that. And so it's horrible. But we don't have that experience. Like we have like, you know, the worst thing we could think of is like the Great Depression, right? Which is horrific, terrifying. They also only have what they know, right? You know, I mean, they, they have a lot of censorship in the country. So they don't know of the things outside of that unless they travel. Yeah, this is more like the deep Chinese psyche, you know, making grand claims about what's in it, right? So you guys could obviously bunt it aside, but that's, this is a great way to kind of just give, give a sense for it. So what, what's going to happen there is it that the, right, so the, the, the modern world, right? One of the reasons it's so, such a difficult thing to get a handle on the, the world and the complexity and all the supply chains, and all this stuff is that we kind of need to start just the way like we, we had that, that pyramid, we talked about how, what, what the human population looked like before industrialization and how it's changed. And like back in the day, the only thing that would change that pyramid was like war, you know, famine, disease, right? It would take a chunk out, but you used to have so many kids. that was just like, all right, a couple generations later, it's done. Um, things are different now. We don't have that. And in the same way, way back in the day, we just had, uh, you know, before, you know, the, we had obviously hunter-gatherer times, but then we had the uh, agricultural revolution. We had, and this is what gave us big cities. This is what gave us big populations population scale it allowed us to have whatever we want to call civilization that's the only reason you can get like forget what else civilization could mean the, a lot of people <laughs> just have a lot of people like that one part you probably need a lot of people if you want to call yourself civilization you need at least agriculture for that so you have agriculture so the economy that we have today the whole in every country uh if you're fortunate enough to, to get up this far is it, it goes from pyramid so in economics they call agriculture the primary sector and that's really accurate because agriculture is first and then you layer everything else up on top of that. So you go, you know, agriculture, you have various commercial stuff, and then you eventually get like industrialization, you have commercial services, you have all this stuff, and it goes all the way up to the top. And then at the top, you have like you know, crazy technological development, like Elon Musk going to Mars or whatever, right? Like that's the very peak, right? But if you lose your food production, uh, what, what happens is that the entire economy just contorts and shifts to, to rebalance, right? So this is the whole Malthusian thing. At the end of the, during the Industrial Revolution, they were so worried that everybody was going to, we're going to run out of food because they're having so many people, right? There, there's so many people. They were they didn't know if they could keep uh, having food production rise, and that would lead to mass famines and death and all this kind of stuff. Uh, what's I mean, the horrific thing is that we're actually probably looking at that now mm-hmm. uh, because we expanded the human population so much in the 20th century, and we expanded it by you know, bringing a lot of really you know a lot of industrial agriculture to places where you know they had nothing before. Right, taking all this marginal land and turning it into, into agriculture and stuff, and that's 
that's a challenge. So you, you basically, you start with agriculture and then like to, to really see, I mean, this is the, the brutal part is that you're going to, we're going to see problems at every level of this, right? So we're going to see problems with agriculture, with the fertilizer, we're already seeing fertilizer, uh, food production. And so China, for example, has, uh, has a, it's called a grain self-sufficiency policy. All these like East Asian countries and India and stuff do this, where they're so worried about, they, they know this stuff. There's been a famine, roughly speaking, every two years in China for like 2000 years, right? Exclude the last, uh, yeah, 45, 75 years. It's forever, right? Various reasons why we get into, but this is a totally different experience than the United States. The United States, the continental United States has never experienced a famine. Never. Not even in the Great Depression. Like the Great Depression to China, when not even nobody even died from famine, what kind of <laughs> depression is that? Like, that's not, right? It's a very different thing. Um, so, you know, the uh, the, the root of all this, the best way to look at all this, I mean, and this is the reason so much of what I have to do focuses on agriculture, because I mean, on, on geographies, because the, if you want to look at this from the, for all the way from the ground up, right, I'm not trying to go all the way back in history just to, to go there, but this is how things are built up. Like a lot of countries weren't even countries, like until we decide to let them be countries in the last 75 years. Afghanistan, nobody would have called that a country uh, ever before, you know, 1945. Yeah, there's a loose, loose collection of tribes back then, right? Yeah, just like some mountains nobody cared about basically yeah. <laughs> uh so it's it's very different and yeah what we're seeing is just this this it's we're going to see a cascade of problems all the way up through the chain and you know it's going to mean a lot of things so the the globalized world that we had allowed us to every country to specialize and to have a part in this global system and the reason that all these countries were able to develop and they all industrialized and the populations all grew is because the us was here and we enabled every country to trade with every other country Nobody was fighting each other. Nobody was blockading the, uh, you know, the strait, you know, the the Turkish Straits, right? There were no blockades of Black Sea ports uh, in Ukraine, right? There was no, you know, the Denmark wasn't preventing things from going past the island of Zealand. The, you know, Singapore didn't prevent anything from moving through the Strait of Malacca, right? All this kind of stuff. Or, you know, Iran always threatens to uh, shut down the Strait of Hormuz. All, all this kind of stuff is, it seems like a fan, oh, this will never happen. This is like, no, <laughs> this is the way the world worked for basically forever. And we live in a world where we, you know, where that didn't happen. Why? Primarily because of the absolute uh, ridiculous uh, military and economic and strategic predominance of the United States. And I'm not trying to sound you know, like a rah-rah American here, but if you look at the actual structure of the world, the only reason any of this can possibly work is because of the United States. Any of it. I mean, France and Germany, the reason there's countries like Belgium you know, it, it exists is because of wars between France and Germany, like 20 or whatever they fought. It's like they had to create countries in between them just to stop them from warring with each other. And now they're like part of an alliance. It's just, it's okay. Uh, anyway, the, so I'll, I'll just try to give some of the, the big picture of that, but the, yeah, I mean, the, the, I'm trying not to sound too dark here. I want to give like more context for why and why things are going bad and all no, that stuff. We can get as dark as this is really going to go. <laughs> yeah. Really, I mean, we don't sugarcoat anything. Yeah, well, I mean, we're going to see probably like a multi-continent famine next year. We're going to see energy shortages in a lot of the world. Uh, and again, we, we, we know all this, right? I mean, you guys, even if you're just following the news. Yeah, you can see it coming. Regularly, you can see it coming, right? Oh, we're not able to plant crops now. You know, you know the, what is it? The world's first largest wheat exporter invaded the fourth largest wheat exporter, Right. And they're both, you know, and then Belarus and Russia and Ukraine, they all export huge amounts of fertilizer. And then obviously China has banned another type of fertilizer for being uh, sold, which it is the largest producer of because it just wants to focus on its pop, on its um, output. All these countries are responding by limiting the exports of their food, 
right? So we had this world, where we had a globalized agriculture where God knows 75% of the stuff that people need to do the agriculture in their countries comes from somewhere else, right? It used to be, if you didn't have the stuff you needed to grow your own stuff, you didn't get to grow stuff, right? You just didn't get to grow stuff. Who's going to, who's going to do that? So now that's not the world we, I mean, that's, that's the, that wasn't the world we've lived in in the last 75 years, but uh, that's the way it's going to work. Like for example, Egypt is the country that is most exposed to everything going on in Ukraine and Russia, right? It, actually, oddly enough, uh, <laughs> Egypt was actually like the, one of the largest wheat exporters for all of human history. That was, and then it really changed in the 1950s for all these reasons. But now it's the, one of the largest importer, like on in a relative terms, relative to its overall calorie needs. And it's it, like, it's just there's not really solutions here, right? Because these are limited, kind of like oil, where you know, a couple million barrels a day here, a million barrels a day there goes away. There's not a bunch of extra stuff. Like, there's not a bunch of extra product lying around. It's really the same for agriculture. So China is a great example. There's the entire agricultural export market can't feed China, not even close, right? They have to be able to do it themselves. That's why they focused on this stuff. But we have a lot of really, uh, you know, historically marginal countries or countries that would really struggle to develop, uh, undeveloped countries, whatever you want to call them, that they need this entire system to work to be able to maintain all the stuff that they built over the last 30, 40 years. And so it's very hard to see a world where this can continue. Uh, well, it's impossible to see world where this can continue. And yeah, and, and so stuff that's coming down the pipeline is basically, uh, there's always three places where, you know, when things, when the shit hit the fan in this whole world, they were probably gonna, where, where was the shit gonna hit the fan? Uh, well, East Asia, uh, the Middle East, and, you know, Western Europe, I mean, Eastern Europe, right? These are the places where things tend to go boom in the world, right? Obviously, Japan, China, the Koreas, like this has been obviously an area of major concern for a very long time. The Middle East needs no introduction. And then, you know, Eastern Europe is obviously Russia, Germany, these borderlands, the wars, Crimea, all this kind of stuff. Uh, these, are, these are known problem points. And the two, yeah, and so, but we're probably going to see conflicts all across that whole ring of Eurasia. Because, I mean, countries are now in a place where they have to, they can't assume that the U.S. is going to help or allow them to get all the things they need to survive. They're going to have to try and get it themselves. Most don't have even the capacity to do that, though. So it could be just a brutal, you just can't, you can't do anything about it. Like, so we, yeah, go on. So, so once, once this sort of thing starts and cascades into this uh, abysmal mess on the other side of the world, does that mean that? like the United States is basically going to have to start upping our own production to make up for what is no longer coming out of East Asia or China or that whole region of the planet. We've already started in other ways. So yeah, I know. With, with industry, yes. So with like industrial products, yep. there's no other way. Right, um, right. So we're going to have to, you know, multiply the U.S. industrial plant and Mexican, right? So NAFTA, that, the whole basically North American. Actually, I mean, it's really Western hemisphere. And so you can think of the, like, the most the countries most linked to, with the United States, it's you know obviously Canada, Mexico, but also Central America, uh, Cuba, bizarrely, and then uh, you know uh, uh, Colombia and uh, Venezuela. The, these countries they're in the Caribbean, right? South America is a continent, but it's not like <laughs> Chile has nothing to do with Colombia, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's far Andes from a unified other, place. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's actually really more part of this U.S. Uh, so the upper part of. Uh, the South America is really kind of tied into this U.S. system, and we're going to have a much more regional world, right? This is what we're going to have, and thankfully for us, the United States has the energy and the agricultural resources 
and the internal markets it needs to do a lot of stuff, as well as the, a lot of the minerals and materials and the vast majority of what it needs, it can also get from relatively reliable people or countries, you know, Australia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So things are good. The a really big problem area though is manufacturing in China, right? So we've moved all this stuff over there. Uh, like, like we mentioned earlier, the, the labor problems there, the labor inflation has been going on for a very long time and countries have been moving, companies have been moving stuff out of, of China for a very long time. But it's just not everything. There's a lot of like sunk costs and a lot of efficiencies that were still there. They were just, they didn't want to you know, bite the bullet. Obviously the supply chain thing should have convinced them. But again, it's like, if I had been saying this a couple of years ago, it's like, would have been weird, but it's like supply chains have been broken for like two years now. <laughs> yeah, not seem, like, right. So far, they seem totally incapable of recovering from what happened to them. Yeah, well, it's like we, we designed these supply chains. They started in the 80s when, well, you know, first you had all this intermodal transport appeared all over the world to let you ship like a container from you know, one thing from a car, I mean, from a truck to a rail to a, a container ship to the other side of the world to all this kind of stuff. And it was linked everything together. Then you got the information systems that allowed you to do it. Then you got a lot of the free trade policies that allowed you to do it. And so corporations basically took advantage of cheap labor and cheap parts, uh, cheap labor and cheap tax laws and cheap shipping costs all around the world and just kind of optimized this for the lowest cost ever. And that produced all these problems now when you need capacity and resilience. So these are all being retooled and the basic, like they're not really going to be global supply chains in the same way anymore. They're going to be regional supply chains. And this was already happening. Like Tesla is a great example. I don't know if you guys are Tesla fans, but it doesn't really matter. <laughs> just, they're just a good example. Okay, cool. Yeah. So, uh, Tesla, you know, they've been building publicly like a factory, they uh, a European factory in Europe, right? And they're not going to just, and they have a China a factory for Chinese cars in China. And the idea is to co-locate your consumption and your production, right? Instead of just like shipping it all over the world and all this stuff, they want to just have it in the places where they're going to do it. And well, I don't think, you know, forget whether China and Europe is a good place, but a lot of people, a lot of companies are all doing the same thing. And what they're really doing is moving production to the United States. Th this is the, the fundamental thing that's happening. If you guys go look at the news, you'll go see... Uh, Volkswagen is moving production here. Yep. All these car companies. All Taiwan's this, uh, actually moving production here too. Microchips. Taiwan. And all that. I think they're going to either Texas or Arizona or both. Yeah. Yep. Samsung, uh, TSMC in Taiwan, Intel. They're all expanding production in the United States. The CEO of Volkswagen literally just said, in the current environment, the United States is the best strategic option. Right. And the, the country to look at, the, the model for this is probably Japan. So Japan, aged, long aged Japan, right? It's been having this, it's been dealing with what we're talking, what we're looking at like 30, for like 30 years now. What they did is they basically took their industrial plant, all that, remember they, they were part of like the, that whole German, um, you know, they, basically they were out competing the US old automakers back in the day. But what they did is they actually started moving their production to the United States. And now there's very little real industrial operations going on in Japan because their labor is so expensive, right? It's just the same thing we talked about, less people, more expensive to people. People are more expensive. And so all their best work and all their best facilities and all their best everything is mostly done in the United States. And they just send the profits back home. And obviously there's currency and whatever problems with that, but that's the way a lot of it's gonna work. Like Germany is a great example. The reason Volkswagen is kind of seeing the writing on the wall is because their entire industrial model doesn't really work anymore, right? They require, the reason Russia, I mean, Germany got in bed with Russia is because it wanted, it needed cheap energy. It has a, it has a relatively high, very expensive population. So it needs cheap, as many cheap inputs as possible. It needs to integrate with Eastern Europe, with the, uh, with the, you know, the European U Union and its systems. They also need the Euro, <clears throat> excuse me, 
to make it more competitive with the United States, the, the whole overall currency. It needs to do all of this stuff and also needs the U.S. to be paying for all of its defense bills. So it doesn't have to spend money on that either, which Japan also really enjoyed. And all that is going away, right? Germany now has, is going to have more expensive gas. It's going to have an older population. It's going to have less integration with Eastern Europe because Eastern Europe looks like it's at war. And then, you know, obviously the, even the, the euro is, is going down to parity with the United, with the, the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar is strengthening. It's increasing even more the cost of, of inputs and loans and oil and commodities and everything. This whole thing, like the whole German industrial model no longer works, right? So if you're a German car company, you're going to have to decide while you may be a German company, you know, on, on the surface, you're gonna have to decide basically if you want to be a company at all, you're probably gonna have to do what you want to do in the United States. The Koreans are, are might probably very similar, very similar. But again, I don't German think engineers have and Americans work on cars, they'll lose their minds. <laughs> yeah, but it's weird. I mean, you can't have, you probably can't have a Korea and a Japan and a Germany and a United States and a China that are all major industrial exporters in this world that we're, we're entering. So you know, it's gonna to have to, Someone's gonna have to drop the ball here. Yeah, someone's gonna be held left on the bag. What, what's a, what do you think is a realistic timeline from where we are now to what this potential and likely future looks like globally, not just China, because China's teetering on the edge right now, but globally, yeah. how long do you think it'll be before we look like that? We, uh, the United States? We, as in the global community, before oh. we look like what, what you just described. Well, I don't think there's gonna be much of a global community too soon. I, I mean, I just think that like, we're all banding together because Ukraine, like it's bringing us all together. What do you do when there's 10 Ukraines? It's like the news, right? It's like, you know, there's one school shooting and you think about what if there's 10 at once? You just, you can't even focus on it. You can't even pretend to, to be invested in each one or to really have a, an ability to influence any of these outcomes. This is the real problem. I and mean, the US was very good in the last 75 years of putting out these fires before they spread. That's why, in a lot of reasons, that's why we were in Vietnam in part. That's why we were in Iraq twice. Uh, not for the best reasons. The second one, all, all these kind of things. Like the, there, there was a strategy behind this that prevent a massive cascade of endless fires from spawning because that's kind of the way the world always was. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of stuff I go. Yeah, and so it's a, it's a real challenge. I mean, the one of the, well, here's an interesting dark thing you guys might like or find fascinating. In, in a bizarre way, you know, we're we're moving into a world where the worse a lot of the rest of the world does perhaps the better the U.S. does. You just think about the United States, right? So it has, for various reasons, it's, it's geography, it's history, it's uh, demography, it's industry, all that kind of stuff. It has, it's extremely capital rich. It doesn't, it has all the food it needs. It has all the energy it needs. Uh, it has, you know, still the second or third largest exporter and industrial uh, power in the world, et cetera. Mil large military, all this kind of stuff. Uh, it has the largest consumer markets, commodity market, all this kind of stuff. It, it just goes through all these things. But there's other more. There's other advantages as well. It's also just the most attractive location for labor all around the world. Everybody, if you're smart, if you're a smart Ukrainian, you want to go to the United States. If you're a smart uh, Russian, you want to go to the United States. If you're a smart Europe, European at all, you want to go to the United States. If you're a smart Asian at all, Eurasian, you want to go to the United States when you see this world that's coming. And it's also the same for money. If you're a rich person anywhere, you want to get your money into the United States. Or obviously, Bitcoin for a while was a thing, but like, probably still want to get your money in the United States. And that's so, so what we're going to see is a lot, we're going to basically see bloods of capital leaving the rest of the world and going to the United States. And what this is doing is it's actually, it's draining the ability of any, any of these other countries to reconstitute themselves, right? You're losing the resources to do that. You're losing the, the capital resources, and you're also losing often your most educated people that could help rebuild your, your state. So mm -hmm. we've, it's always been a great advantage that the United States can 
pick the cream of the crop from all around the world. But it's going to, you know, in the world that's coming, it's going to mean that most of these countries aren't going to be able to do anything but stare around at the rubble. Flounder. Now, Grizz, this actually, I think this is uh, fueling my idea that we've discussed a couple of times. I know you shake your head at it all the time, but. Which one? <laughs> uh, well, let's see what, uh, what he thinks of this. So I think that the best solution, based on all the information you presented and the things that I've seen over the last couple of years, one world government. And you know, conspiracy theorists have been conspiracy conspiracy theorists have been afraid of this for the last thirty years, but with everything that is going on, it might just be better to be one one people. I and clearly, the United States has been doing a pretty good job. Maybe we should take over everything. Right. Well, we, <laughs> well it's interesting. I mean, after nineteen forty five, we could have. Yeah, but we didn't. You know, more we did. What we did that. was kind of build all this. Um, what I think. I mean, you know, kind of funny. Not, not. To, I like the question. I, I gotta get some random thought. Like, it's funny. I was actually in South America at one point, doing work. It was highly involved with a lot of these like international agencies and stuff. And it was often it was basically like international governance mechanisms and all this kind of stuff. And it's so funny when you actually look at it, when you actually try to see how it works. None of it works. The only reason, seriously, the only reason any international law, any international this, any international that has any teeth. Uh, in the model was because the U.S. military could potentially uh, enforce something. No one else even has a military. Like I'm not just saying the U.S. I mean, you know, after you know, 1945, nobody else really built. We, we created a world where we kept the military and everybody else didn't have one that kind of relied on us. So that's, that's the world. But none of them have teeth, man. It's crazy. I mean, unfortunately, we're stuck in this world of, of nations and nationalities and peoples. And we're going to see a lot of nations and nationalities and peoples disappear. Like we're right. going to see probably a bunch of Remember the, the Soviet Union fell and a bunch of stands came out of nowhere. You had a Kazakhstan mm -hmm. and Uzbekistan. Yep. You know, we'll probably see a, a few more stands come out of Russia, right? Oh, I mean, yeah. that's, you know, yeah, that's. So if the rest of, of the world splinters like that, like the major players, Russia and China, if they collapse to the point where they splinter like that, we don't really have real competition to the United States anymore. That's right. So this is the, this is the, this is kind of something I worry about, guys. I mean, you know, basically, the U.S. has been the most powerful country in the world probably since the late 19th century, right? After some time after Reconstruction, and it was kind of you know, then there's World War One, it was kind of challenged. Uh, World War Two was challenged. It was challenged by the Soviet Union, then you know maybe by Japan in the 80s, now by China. You know, you're in a fourth or fifth rodeo. The world maps, it's done. I mean, there is no section of the world that can combine the labor, the land, the talent, the technology, the people to compete with the United States. The game of the global game of political risk is over, right? That's a, a good thing or whatever, but it also means what do you do now? We gotta right? find them aliens. What do you do? <laughs> I, I think this is a serious question. I think in the you know this next 10, 15 years, this is gonna be what we're trying to figure out, right? So what you know, what does this country uh, do? What can it do? What should it do? What should it try and do? I mean, do we want to just be a country? We want to turn into Japan where it's just like all right, well, let's just all get old and make the feeding tubes really nice and whatever, and we'll just kind of go. I mean, you, we, there needs to be a stronger vision for what, not to get intense here, but it probably, probably you need to bring back the idea of, of civilization. This is pro this word. And so I use it uh, a lot because that's, it's the more appropriate thing to call China. Like a nation is, no, no, that's, a, I don't even know, like that's nothing. But like civilization, that makes sense. And, and so I, I've, had, I've always used it a lot. But that's kind of the, the challenge, right? You know, you're going to see a world like, you know, a civilized and a pretty barbaric world, right? And we have to figure out what uh, we want to do. We have to figure out 
and again, this, obviously the left and the right things should, should come up here. It's like, well, you know, the right will always be like, well, you know, the human heritage and this and tradition and that and that. But it's also like we also need to move things forward. We also see like where where is it going? It's not just like, oh, we are a, a bastion of civilization if we're all just going to get old and then just die. You know what I mean? Like this this pyramid thing is just it it, it, it infects everything, right? It's just like if you don't have this, if you don't have a population that's growing, it's like, well, where what are we doing? I mean, one of my senses of it is that you got to have, you know, technology is a big part of it, right? I mean, technology like going, you know, whether it's Unfortunately, the green revolution is probably getting destroyed by all this problems too. The, the supply chains for that are pretty brutal. But uh, you know, going to the moon—I mean, these sorts of things, improving you know, bioengineering—you're going to need. We're going to need a lot of this stuff. I mean, there's—you do need motivating visions for for what to do to get people, uh, you know, excited about the world, doing something. It's important. And and all these things, I think, become easier with a more global unifying. Uh governing body, if that were to be even possible, instead of all these splintered countries. So, you know, we'd be able to do things like invest in these technologies a lot easier, because we have access to all supply chains, because it's kind of like being one country globally. So it's all just collectively your stuff. But then we run into the other issue where now we have to support all those other places that never had the resources that we have. That's and, the rub, man. Yeah. <laughs> Brexit. Nobody wants anything. Nobody wants anything to do with most of the world. Right. Like France wants precisely zero to do with, you know, Cambodia right now. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Germany does not want to help Mongolia with anything. Like, right. I mean, the, the truth is we have these divisions of identity and history and class and language and ethnicity and all of it. And they're here with us. We can't really get away from them. Um, so, yeah, it's just, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, just one world government, man. Whew, we're actually going the opposite. We're going to see instead of like mm -hmm. a, a new world order. What is it? A new world order? Was that? Yeah, the, uh... I think the the conspiracy is the new world order. Yeah. Yeah. So I did a video called the New World Disorder because that's kind <laughs> of like, you know, that's that's more closer to where we're, we're heading. Yeah, yeah. It, it, the opposite of what could potentially work. We're just going to splinter more. Yeah. So yeah. Before just... before we wrap this up a little bit. I want to take you from a lighter note of apocalypse to mm. um, genocide, or what many have called genocide. You think genocide is lighter than apocalypse? Good for mm. you, Chris. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on. <laughs> what is it? I believe the whole Uyghur thing is still happening. We're just yeah, not it's, hearing it's pronounced it. Uyghur. Uyghur, sorry. <clears throat> is that still going on, and why? Yeah, the Uyghurs. So yeah, that's going on. That's one of the kind of many things. The gist of it is that um, the core regions of China are basically the, the Yangtze and the Yellow River Valleys. That's kind of where most of the Chinese people live. When we talk about that kind of eastern section of China, uh, that's you know, if we map China on the United States, that, that would be the sort of where you guys are. That would be the, those river valleys. That would be an ex expanded version of where you guys are. And then everything else around that is all these wastelands, borderlands, all this kind of stuff. And they're historically filled by all these various peoples that aren't Han Chinese. And China doesn't take over these lands historically because they're like good land. They're like, great. Like, we're going to put a bunch of people here. It's mainly because they want a big security fence around the part of China that they like, those river valleys. And so Tibet and Xinjiang and Manchuria to some, de to some degree, uh, parts of Southwest China, all of this was part of just this giant security fence they've been drawing. And yeah, and so there's populations there that they have not yet brought into the fold, right? So the reason China, if you look at a map of like ethnicities in China, you guys check it out when you're, when you're bored, like languages and ethnicities in China, you'll see this massive scattered map with Han Chinese there. 
they've been slowly over the centuries sort of grinding away at all these other peoples, right? And this is the, sort of the process of consolidation. It just hasn't hit all these other peoples. And the way it worked for the Uyghurs is that they actually, the Uyghurs and the Chinese actually worked together to genocide another people called the Dzungars years, a couple, you know, before the Geneva Convention. And then now what China's trying to do is, is roughly speaking, finish the job here. They want to get this people with a different religion and ethnicity and all that out. Uh, it's just, you, you can't do that in the same way. So yeah, you've seen forced labor, uh, you know, roughly speaking, genocide is not, it's not a, inaccurate way of putting it. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's going on, right? So this is another area where the Chinese state sees threats, right? Threats, 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 threats. So they don't want Tibetans. They need, they want control of Tibet because that's the origin of, of all of the major rivers in China, as well as Southeast Asia, as well as India. So if India took control of that, they could just like shut off the water, all the crops would disappear. China would all just, just blow away. Uh, similar thing, Xinjiang was historically part of the, uh, it was part of the Silk Road, roughly speaking. And it led to the, the overland trade routes that China acquired capital from you know, throughout its, its history. And it never really managed to conquer Xinjiang in any serious way until the, the last Chinese dynasty. But it's, uh, it's useful, especially now it has uranium. It has lots of mineral, mineral resources, stuff like that. It's really not uh, economically effective and viable, though. It's basically been developed by paramilitary organizations, among other things. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's a... Heinous oppression, guys. I mean, heinous oppression is probably a good way to describe what's going on there. I mean, the, the, they've basically been trying out all sorts of population control, surveillance, monitoring tools there, like gate analysis, fingerprint stuff. Um, it's just everything. They, they look at everything you have. They fake text messages, bots. They're mad. Like, yeah, they, don't, they don't have any of those pesky human rights in their way. No. And they're actually, they used uh, Xinjiang as the training ground for stuff they want to roll out throughout China. So... They've rolled out a lot of it throughout China. So it's on a deeper level what the Chinese state is, is it's bunkering down and it's implementing like mass population control strategies, right? So like you guys have seen pictures of Hong Kong when they all started to go on a long march together, a long walk together. Imagine, and this is what I mean by real chaos in China. Imagine if people just start flooding out of cities. There's just, it, it, it's, it, it's tens of millions of people, right? Yeah. It's, it's just mind boggling. What it's mind boggling. So this is a, yeah, I mean, this is a, uh, Whew. It's bad. And, you know, and honestly, they might they might use some of this chaos to, you know, settle some scores, end some things, right behind the scenes, all that. That's also yeah, yeah you know, it's China. They'll never let anything like that go to waste. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a good a good uh, a good crisis to, to let us stab some people in the back in the darkness <laughs> was is uh, always always a good thing for them. Yeah, it is. Uh, so let's uh, let's go hypothetical for a minute and put you in in power. What do you think is the best way for China to avoid this disaster? Oh, it's 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 way beyond that at this point. Like it's it, no China, China. China's toast, guys. It's toast. It's like doomed is the word I've been using recently because uh, it, it seems so portentous. But like, yeah, it's it's bad. I mean, it's got financial problems. It's got monetary problems. It's got uh, trade problems. It's got diplomatic problems. Political problems. Internal social problems. Uh, basic fundamental industrial problems. It, like I said, the agriculture, the energy problems are probably one of the big ones that's going to hit them. They now have these public health problems. So they have widespread uh, dislocations of everything, manufacturing, uh, basic services. They're, they're looking at trying to, what they've been doing is for the last 10, 15 years, they've been accumulating more and more power in a small group of people that suddenly have to manage this extremely complex economy. Uh, that's not 
you know, the same reason you brought up earlier, Grizz, like the, the Soviet Union collapsed. It's like, well, you had all these guys who didn't know what the hell they were doing trying to run petrochemicals and auto manufacturing and the military and the electrical grid. And all, they don't know what the hell they're doing. So mm-hmm. when you have a really, uh, you know, large, diversified, modern, advanced economy, you need specialists and people who have knowledge of all these areas. You just kind of they have to be able to do it themselves because no one knows what to do. Right? I mean, there's just... <laughs> You can't like some random dude. Like, it, it, honestly, the, the private sector equivalent is always like the guy who gets an MBA and just wants to be like the leader of a company. Now it's like you don't know anything. It's just it's, it, you know, bizarrely, it's kind of similar. Like you're just a random bureaucrat. You want to like roll into the uh, you know the electrical uh, you know all, all the electrical companies say this is how it's going to be. It's like you don't know anything. <laughs> Very similar. Um, so that is, I mean, that's that's the challenge, and it's just the the, the real challenge for China is that they're going to see they're going to have so many problems they're going to have to deal with all at once. I mean, they have. All these environmental challenges you didn't even get into, these demographic ones. And they're going to have to pick which ones are you going to even solve? Like, which ones are you going to solve? So what they're going to probably focus on are things that allow them to maintain the territorial integrity and the political unity of China. And so, you know, so some people are, you know, some parts of the country, some problems just won't get fixed, right? You don't have endless resources. You can't spread yourself too thin. Uh, it's a real challenge. I mean, the truth is, though, they don't, they're in a bad place also where Xi Jinping is is less and less effective. And he's also very determined to have an, a, a final term and to break the mold of kind of transitioning power in China. But it's kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. Because it, actually, this, this is kind of interesting. You guys should check it out. There's a my next podcast episode. It's called The Red Emperor. It's very cool. And it talks about like how power politics happens in China. How do you become the emperor or the prime minister or the the mm, you know, yeah, communist it's, secretary it's general? I've never, I, I just assumed it was just you know, uh, like a royal transition. I, I never really gave hmm. much thought to it. Yeah, it, it's a cool thing. And the, the, the gist of it, how it's happened since 1978, is that you basically have a bunch of elders to get together and pick someone. And they just kind of gets the blessing of the elders. And then you have, and then that person goes and proceeds to purge all of his rivals, right? <laughs> that, it's yeah. basically like a blessing and a purge. That, that's how they transition power in China right now. And so what would happen though, if they tried to transition power to someone else, he would have to go and like, basically prune and, and remove all these other power centers and do all this stuff to consolidate his power. But Xi Jinping has, has done such an extensive purge of everybody that you don't have, China doesn't have the time. It has such big problems coming right now. They can't let some new, new know-nothing so do it while, and give him all these years to, to do it because he, he would be in Xi Jinping's shadow for a long time. Unless, of course, you want to try and get rid of Xi Jinping, but then you're just creating up all these other issues. So they're kind of stuck. They're probably going to, uh, you know, you never know, but most likely he's going to get a third term. And you know, at this point, we're looking at a leader that's more powerful than Mao. And, I didn't even know they had terms. <laughs> yeah, roughly speaking, terms. Terms is just to, you know, make it more palatable, right? It's like, that's nice. they don't even call it a term. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, and that is, that's where things are heading. And the challenge is, that, so you're, you're damned if you, if, you, if you get rid of Xi Jinping, but you're also damned if you keep him because he's clearly not, capable of who honestly the truth is nobody's capable of of fixing these problems at this point there's no leader they could have that would fix their problems i mean this is also something that the reporting about the russia situation is missing you know obviously they they messed this up but you know there's a good reason why putin went to war he's not crazy obviously it totally bungled the whole thing but they're running out of time and people and money and everything in russia russia has you know russia and ukraine have a smaller you know less impressive economies today than they had in 1989. The Russian people were not advancing to become high income, not become some high income nation. They're, they're literally just a resource exporter. 
they were losing their military capacity. Their, their military is eroding. Like behind the, the industrial plant behind the military was always eroding. Uh, so I, I have articles and stuff I've written that are saying like, damn, these people are, this is nothing. I mean, this, this is a joke, but like nobody expected to be this much of a joke. So they're literally defend, losing the ability to defend their own country. And I don't know if you know anything about Russians, but they're, they can be a little paranoid. So this is just freaking, freaking everybody out, right? It is freaking, it's freaking Russia out, it's freaking everybody out. And they really had no time, right? They're, they're one of these countries like China that is aging into demographic obsolescence and, and death, basically. So if they wanted to create a state that they thought was defensible, that could be secured, they wouldn't have to have like an endless massive army, you know, defending all their borders forever, uh, doing, they had to do it. I mean, they should have done it five or six years ago, clearly, because they, they, they really misfired on this, but it's not crazy, right? And I think it's the same thing in China. You know, when, when things really, when the shit really hits the fan in, in China, you know, I want you guys to know that it's not, obviously they, they were avoiding problems and they were also kicking things down the road and they didn't fix their economy, but they really could never have fixed this thing. There, there's, there's hard structural limits on these places. And we always assume as Americans, everybody else is just on their way to becoming like America. You know, oh, they're gonna have a, a military like ours and a, an economy and a this and a that and a yeah. A that's the story we all hear. Yeah, it's it's not. These countries are every other country on earth is so much more uh, limited and circumscribed. And uh, you know, w- once this book is done, I'm really I've been working on thinking about doing this for a while. I want to create a course called Map Your World that would help give people a lay of the land and why things look the way they do, why certain countries and regions have produced all these powers over the, over the centuries, and what that means and how that compares to like modern. You know, what happened when the United States appeared. Right, where it's just like immediately rose to the top of the pack and has been the most powerful country for like 150 years. This is an important thing because there's so much like American exceptionalism on the right and bizarre identity politics, occasional like ethnic masochism, all this kind of stuff on the left trying to figure out what does it mean? What does this power mean? Why do we have it? Are we just because we're imperialist dogs? Is it because we oppress other people? How should we use this power? Do we you know, give, give, do we sucker the rest of the world or do we, you know, just lord it in our, you know, North American? you know, island out here and just kind of like, you know, drink martinis till we die. There's real questions about this. And it's just, I don't know, I've been in a really animated state while I've been talking to you guys. I've just been all scattershot everywhere. And <laughs> it kind of fits today because like, it's just, uh, we're, we're getting to a point where there's no, you, you know, if you just read the news about anything, you're just not gonna learn anything anymore. Uh, like, it's pretty horrific. And you know, I'm doing the opposite. I'm trying to give like these, like a comprehensive framework for, for these things. And I always feel like I'm, I feel like every every day, every time I not it's not you guys not talking to you guys. It's just like when I talk to about the world, I feel like I the our grasp of the world is getting uh, thinner and thinner as things get more and more chaotic, and so we're just all pushing it away, and it just leaves us even less capable of understanding. Uh, not capable, but less um, confident that we, we we'll get a handle on any of this stuff. Uh, so it's very you know it's really unfortunate and kind of dangerous, but it looks like it's the trend that's going to continue. So the people who actually have a sense of like where things are going and why and what to do about it. And what's worth even better is just like, what's worth focusing on? Like, that's going to be a key thing. Like, you don't want to have this endless chaos and never know what to, to really pay attention to because we all got shit to do in our own lives, you know? Oh, look, we don't even pay attention to COVID anymore. It's, it is yeah, complete madness. It's done. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, Jason, I think that uh, that's a, a good positive note to leave things off on for our, our listeners. That Sounds positive. good. Oh, Very as positive. positive. As positive <laughs> as that situation is possible. We, we moved away from apocalypse and genocide. So, relatively, it's kind that's of true. Positive, right? So, we went in the positive direction. But, yeah, uh, yeah Jason, I, that's, there's way more than we can cover here in one podcast episode. So, for people that really want to get a deeper dive into what's going on with China and 
you know, the research you're doing on it, where can they go and check things out? Yeah. So guys, you can find me on what Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, you should check those out. Uh, check out also China Unraveled, the podcast. It has, I think, 16 episodes now. The 17th one, which I mentioned, the, the Red Emperor is going to come out. That one's super cool. You guys, check that out. Uh, a bunch of articles. You can go look, uh, you know, Jason Sheftel. So yeah, Jason, last name is Sheftel, S-Z-E-F-T-E-L. That's uh, got that. I also have a, a website that has some stuff, jasonsheftel.net. Um, I actually got my my web, my domain stolen, the one that had the .com. So now, now it's .net. So anyone was confused about that. Try, try having bastard in the name. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? That's funny. Um, yeah, and so that stuff's big. I I'd say, yeah, also YouTube. I got just random videos and stuff, but most likely check out those those uh those podcasts. Look for some articles. Uh if you're really interested, you thought, you know, maybe there's a perspective here that could be helpful. Uh the book will be really, really good. And if you just want short, light, um, you know, quick commentary where I just mouth off about things, I've been using TikTok to do that. Kind of like the, the one Chinese company. I'm like, well, you know what? You're the one that made it. Like, what well, well, it's really funny. Well, first of all, I've probably I'm never gonna have many followers on on TikTok, most likely because I get shut down. Like I'm, I'm talking about China <laughs> on TikTok, so join the the small club, people. Uh, but I, I just kind of like we'll see we'll see where that goes. But yeah, there's many places. So you know, type in my name, you'll find all this. Also, lots of interviews. You know, all right, dozens of nice, them, awesome. Thanks for being on the show. It has thank been you guys. Uh, a wild ride. Wild ride for sure. Well, Grizz, um, super different from what we've covered before. Like we said at the mm. beginning of this episode. And uh, there, there was a lot of things that Jason talked about that, you know, for one, not being all about China. I didn't really know anything about it. I didn't know about the whole cycle of their, their fall of their dynasties and all that. Um, so I kind of have a new perspective and a lot more things to read about going forward. Yeah, I mean, I thought his, his perspective was very interesting, totally different than what you're hearing from everywhere else. Yeah. Um, although a lot of it you do hear, you know, we're not worried about where they're at. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not shocking. I mean, it's it's interesting that it's communism in China is kind of taking the same turn that it did in, and I know neither of them are really truly communist, but uh, mm -hmm. taking the same turn as Russia, you know? Yeah, it's uh, it is interesting though because I I've been looking at um, financial history recently mm. and looking at the rise and fall of global powers mm. and things like the reserve currency and how we end up with it right now. Why are we using the US dollar as reserve currency. But if you look at his, uh, his flow of history, and then the flow of monetary history, they are, I would say they're kind of competing a little bit. Mm -hmm. So right now, China is at a intersection with us where they're slowly overtaking economically, which we've discussed many times in the mm -hmm. show. Um, but that is without this other information that he's sharing with us, things like their lack of ability to feed their population mm. makes sense when you think about it, but not something that's ever really talked about because everyone focuses on the economic superpower aspect. Mm. Well, I also think that they're losing a lot of the stuff that they used to make because they're yeah, no they're losing ground, cheap, right? So it's still right. going to other places. Like, what was the last thing you remember you bought that said made in China? It's probably some cheap trinket kind of thing, right? I think I think it was like dishes or something like that but you're right there's actually i've seen a lot of a lot of um news articles over the last couple of years that talk about specifically manufacturing of certain products going from china over to places like india mm -hmm. uh and cheaper cheaper places like that yeah totally absolutely i mean i look at anything you have right now just grab whatever's close to you and it's probably not made in china anymore 
Let's see. Uh, what do I got? What do I got? And you can't count Taiwan. Uh, yeah, that might be made in China. Camera lens, which is, you know, you can make a really high-end camera lens mm-hmm. for pretty cheap. But this one right here is a really good camera lens, and it's made in Korea. There you go. Korea does a lot. Vietnam does a lot. Um, Thailand, like all these places. And, and, you know, it's still fucked up that we're, <laughs> we're we go to these places because they're insanely cheap labor. Uh, but their yeah. cost of living is also way lower than ours too. Um, but it's true. It's still fucking and up. like as a as an average consumer, I prefer to buy something that wasn't made in a sweatshop. But like this, the lens that I just showed you, I can't really get a good lens that's not made in one of those countries. Korea's not bad. No, but it's still not the same as like the standard of living in America, from no. what I know. Although you, I could be totally wrong. I don't really have a, a full picture Korea's, on what it's like. Korea's over there. pretty up there. I've been to Korea. I would call it. it <laughs> I have called it before. It's just a Western Asia. You know, I, I have to admit that my view of any country outside of Western civilization, we'll say, you know, Europe, uh, United States, my view on their manufacturing process, it comes entirely from the movie Freddy Got Fingered. Mm, I don't think it's that. Where, <laughs> where basically uh, in that movie, kids in Bangladesh are sewing soccer balls in a sweatshop, and that's where we, where we get soccer balls from. <laughs> That's my view on everything that comes from a country like that. I could be totally off base, but I don't really know. My, you know, the story in this episode that where I talk about the role of uh, upholstery that they set on fire on the side of the road. I, when I was talking yeah. to that guy, it was actually like, oh, what'd you do? Turn it into soccer balls? He's like, that's a great idea. I didn't have that chance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could have done. Uh, you know, they, the other issue that I see with manufacturing these other countries where they're almost not paying people is the amount of waste because it's so cheap that they don't they're not really worried about saving it and so you know actually we i was just telling you about the quote i was looking at with uh the smog in china Mm. it it was i don't know if it was somebody important or someone random in china like on the street but the guy said uh there's it's so normal to have smog in china that he thinks it's unusual when he walks outside and sees a a bright clear day that's probably that's that's the balance i actually read an article today that was saying that um in 2020, 83,000 people moved out of um, Hong Kong. And the 21 was, I don't remember, it was maybe like 30,000 or something. They're predicting next year is going to be even more. Yeah, but if you look at the actual population of that place, it's that's like a drop, yeah, in, the a drop in the bucket. It sounds like a, a huge amount of people. And relatively speaking, it kind of is. But if you look, if you look at the population of that area, it's you probably wouldn't even notice. Yeah. No, you wouldn't. But still, interesting no? nonetheless. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you again for listening to Beautiful Bastards. New episodes every Monday. Remember to like and subscribe. Struggles of the masses and ideas. Let China sleep, for when she wakes, she will shake the world. What? <laughs> Zap Brannigan. I'm just kidding. That was Napoleon. <laughs>